when I was a kid, I wanted to be a paleontologist. And now I'm a food writer. Hi, I'm Ben Hanani. Welcome to How Do You Do, a podcast featuring creative guests sharing the nuances of their process. Just a quick reminder to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts is the most helpful thing you can do for the podcast. My guest today is Jeff Gordonier. Jeff is the food and drinks editor of Esquire and a frequent contributor to the New York Times. A product of Southern California and a graduate of Princeton University, he wrote 2008's X Saves the World, co-edited the 2015 essay collection, Here She Comes Now, and wrote the 2019 book, Hungry, Eating, Road Tripping, and Risking It All with the Greatest Chef in the World, which was shortlisted for the 2020 Edward Stanford Travel Writing Awards, Travel, Food, and Drink Book of the Year. Without further ado, welcome to the pod, Jeff. Hey, thanks a lot, Ben. Good to see you. Likewise, thank you. And fans of this podcast might recall that you were actually my current curiosity in episode three, you and your book, Hungry. So um, it's, a, it's, real, it's a real treat to have one of my previous current curiosities now in front of me and being able to chat with you. It's all coming together. I'm flat. Yeah, exactly. So um, my current curiosity today is actually a book by Stephen King called On Writing. Yeah. It was recommended to me by a, by a couple of friends. And I've actually never read Stephen King's work. I'm not a huge Stephen King person, but I can recognize he's good at what he does. The same way you don't have to be a basketball fan to know Michael Jordan was the best to do it. So um, I've just been reading it. And what's cool is that it's not really a how-to or prescriptive book. It's just more a memoir about his experiences with writing, how he got his first professional writing gig. And it's been cool just as a young writer myself. I'm in TV writing. But it's still cool to see how somebody like as great as Stephen King is had to work hard early in his career and what it was like, how happy he was to get, you know, just even a few bucks from a magazine for a piece he submitted. So that's just been fun and made me think like everybody has their journey and you got to start somewhere. So for someone early in their career like me, it's been cool to think about. I have recommended uh, that Stephen King book to a lot of people over the years. You know, people just assume he's this horror writer and he's an extremely virtuosic one he's very skilled at that but his advice in on writing is invaluable i i hate to provide this it, it's kind of a spoiler alert thing but um he gets hit by a car midway through the book literally he got he he was on a walk and when he was working on that book maybe about two-thirds of the way through if you pick it up and read it, you'll see that the writing itself changes and the perspective changes um, very hauntingly, brilliantly, um, and 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 sadly, frankly, because he, tragically, because he he um, he gets hit by a driver. So it's yeah. Already, I I can tell this guy has had some terrible injuries and experiences. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, he he accidentally when I was when he was a kid, his brother told him like you know, clean, clean up your butt with the, the leaves in the brush or whatever. And he happened to pick poison ivy. Oh, <laughs> um, I forgot. So that's already, that's already. I was like, wow, this guy just has terrible luck. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But is there anything recently that has sparked your curiosity? Yes. I am reading a book called evil geniuses, the unmaking of America by Kurt Anderson, uh, Kurt Anderson, if you've been following magazines for the over the decades, he founded Spy Magazine, one of the great American humor magazines, uh, with Graydon Carter. He was also the editor in chief of uh, New York Magazine. He's written novels. He's done all sorts of things. Hosted radio shows. He's kind of a, a, an omnivore in terms of media. Um, but what it is, is it, I, I like short books. My own book, Hungry, is a short book. You know, you can. Yeah, read. thank you for that. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's the thing, man. Like, people are so distracted these days. I am no different. I, you know, I'm drawn into Facebook and Instagram and political discussions and the news of the day every single, every single day, every single news cycle, really. And um, it's hard for me to focus on a long book. So I, I made sure that Hungry was something you could ex essentially read on a, on a long plane ride, you know, or in a couple of days on the beach. That said, 
evil geniuses is that is that rare epic sprawling nonfiction super dense book that I will undertake now and then. And it essentially explains how from about 1960 to now, with a huge pivot happening in the early 70s and particularly up to 1980, um, extremely greedy right-wingers took over America in countless ways, took over the courts, took over the executive branch, branch with Ronald Reagan as the president, of course, but also um, altered all sorts of laws and policies and, you know, things that govern how you trade on Wall Street, um, even, even in some ways changed our vantage point on business through pop culture. So it's just, it's, it's sort of um, one of these books that you re read and, it, and you think, oh, this explains everything. Yeah, <laughs> like this explains how we got here. This is, explains why there are people denying climate change in the midst of so much evidence that it's real, horrifying evidence that it's real. Of course, um, it, it, it explains why you know I can't save any money. It explains why college costs so much. I mean, it's all connected, man. You know, <laughs> I sound like Dennis Hopper in Apocalypse Now, but but like it's all connected. Um, it's a pretty brilliant book and it's, it seems, he seems to have done the research that I will never have the patience to do like, like years, maybe even decades of reading and research and he's boiled it all down. So, and I love the title evil geniuses, you know, it's like, it's like an eighties title. It's, it's, yeah. it's like an eight, you know, it's like Lex Luthor. Um, so I'm pretty into it. And it's making me think of growing up in Southern California. I grew up in, I say Pasadena, but I essentially grew up in San Marino, which is a little town next to Pasadena. We were right on, we lived right on the border. Actually, our backyard was in Pasadena. And San Marino is one of the most right-wing communities in America, or was when I was in high school in the, in the 1980s. It's one of the communities in California that helped catapult Richard Nixon into power and Ronald Reagan into power. It's a lot of money, um, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of power concentrated in this tiny town. And when I, we moved there from the New York area in the late seventies. And I was sort of, even as a kid, I was like, what the hell is this place? <laughs> I was always- <laughs> That's like, fascinating. Yeah, I was always like, kind of like yeah. little hippie, like little nature boy. And I, you know, almost like a junior Grateful Deadhead kind of, and I, and I was like, <laughs> what is going on with these weird preppies? I thought we moved to California, but instead it's like we moved to, 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 to you know, some weird masterpiece theater uh, TV show where, you know, everybody's hyper wealthy and super conservative. Um, but Evil Geniuses helps contextualize what was going on there for me. It helps me understand that everything from people wearing polo shirts to worshiping Gordon Gecko in the Wall Street movie, um, you know, to suddenly building much bigger houses that it's all connected. Much more than you need well, to know, but I, I highly recommend Evil Geniuses. You've pitched it quite well, and usually my barometer is if it hurts for me to hold up the book while I'm reading it in bed, if it's that thick, then I usually move on. But that looks, man, you're showing it to me now, it looks manageable, and you've pitched it well enough where it's worth it. So I'm halfway. I'm, I'm halfway. And that's longer, <laughs> That's more than I normally do, you know, because I, I just like my brain will suddenly leap to a new thing all the time. Like I'll suddenly yeah. pull, pick up a different book. And in some ways, all my, my processes of creativity have to do with managing distractibility and trying to almost siphon it into a productive direction. You know? Right. Well, that feeds nicely into what you sent me about how you like to randomly flip through poetry books, which I thought was so cool. And I'm curious, like, what, what inspiration do you get from that? Because you're not a poet yourself, but there's something you seem to glean from this other medium that helps you in your own writing. Well, I don't, have you ever heard of oblique strategies cards? No. Okay. Well, there's a, there's, a, there's a famous producer musician named Brian Eno. He produced a lot of Talking Heads albums and U2 albums. Um, he was in Roxy Music in the beginning. And he's also one of the great eggheads of rock and roll, one of the great intellectuals. And he had these cards that he created, maybe with somebody else, that are called oblique strategies. And the idea of them is you just flip to the any random card 
and it will give you an instruction for the day for your creative hmm. endeavor. So it might say like, reject assumptions. Okay. And, and, you, and, you, and it just comes out of the blue, man. Like, you don't know why you, you picked this. It's just, so you just have to commit to that that day. Um, so I bring this as I, 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 Pete Wells, my friend at the New York Times, who's the restaurant critic, he actually uses those cards sometimes, the actual cards, sometimes to shake yeah. yourself out of ruts creatively. I use poems and postcards. Those are sort of my two tools. Um, and um, maybe they're just really sophisticated forms of procrastination. And I'm saying that they're creative tools, but nevertheless, it's too late to shake them. Um, behind me, I have a ton of books. This is actually my daughter Margot's room. She's in college right now. So I'm using it as my office. And I have, I have tons of poetry old poetry, new, experimental poetry, traditional poetry, uh, poetry from all different backgrounds, culturally, gay, straight, all, just also all different mindsets. I love poetry itself. It's not like I like one type or one right. subset or, you know, one school of poetry. Um, I like it all. I mean, I don't necessarily like every poem. I just, I, sure. and um, what I'll often do in lieu of, oblique strategies is just grab a book, you know, Terrence Hayes, Kevin Young, Ada Limon, Sappho, who knows, I just grab a book, open it up and find a poem I like. I don't just open anything. I find something yeah. where the words leap out at me and I love it. And if I really, really, if it speaks to me, I actually type it up in my Gmail. Like, so I open the book, I hold it open with a stapler and I type it up you know, word for word, the exact same punctuation, exact same spacing to sort of understand at a deeper level, the music of the poem, the, the mechanics of why does it work? Why, why is it acting upon me? Um, usually these are not super long poems, as you can imagine, right. because that would be very frustrating, <laughs> but usually yeah. a page or two. And, and, um, and then I kind of absorb and internalize the perspective of that poet in a way that, that I feel is... Um, I don't know, it's sort of part of my, it's almost like therapy, it's part of my growth process. And, and uh, if I really like it, I will share that poem then with a few friends. I sort of, in, uh, not, a, not a blast, not an email blast, but individually share it with a group of friends who, I, who will be receptive. And I have found that that has um, kind of redirected the currents of my language. We, we, I'm 53 at my age, you know, you, you fall back on ruts, you fall back on synaptic rustiness, like things that you, you've been using certain phrases, certain words you've been using for too long and too many times. Mm -hmm. My mom actually recently sent me something that I wrote when I was 10 years old. And I was shocked that I, I had used a couple, there were a couple words in this little letter that I use all the time still. And I thought, oh, wow, that's appalling that I have, <laughs> I have changed so little since I was 10 years old. I'm still the same writer. So I guess the poetry process, which I call the daily poetry delivery project, is a way to um, shake things up, just like bring different yeah. language, different perspective, different rhythms, different music into my head. And that seems to almost loosen the rocks you know it's mm -hmm. almost like and then there's kind of more of a creative avalanche and i can start writing my own thing my own thing will have nothing to do with that poem i mean the poem that yeah it, i'm not trying to mimic it or anything it's just right. that it's it's like a it's like a, a wedge or a tool that sort of loosens the rocks right i like that it's like instead of a morning coffee you wake up to this poem that then you know gets your creative juices going too exactly there's also a lot of morning coffee <laughs> like a ridiculous right. like very unhealthy amount i basically don't drink i drink very yeah. rarely uh usually just for pro professional reasons um i don't do any drugs i don't i've never really had that um desire actually and um or inclination um but coffee i'm yeah a junkie like before noon i'll drink as much cold brew as available i'll just guzzle it all just be like shaking yeah <laughs> but um, that 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 works for you yeah i i think you know you know man sometimes a lot of people they, they know i'm into poetry they'll come to my house see all the poetry books and they're like oh wow poetry freaks me out 
it's not my thing. I don't understand it. And, and, you know, I get that, but I mean, I really get it. But the thing is, we're not in school anymore. You, right. You, there are no rules. You don't, there's not a right way or a wrong way to read the poem. There's no right way or wrong way to use the book as an object. You don't have to read every right. poem in the book. You don't have to read the book in a linear way. Just open it up. Just find something. Guess what? You don't even have to understand it. There's nothing, it's not like a puzzle to be unlocked. It's not really a Rubik's cube to be, you know, fixed or, you know, it, it's just music. It's, it's like hearing a song that maybe you don't get right away, but as you, right. you know, internalize it into your, your bloodstream, it starts to become part of you and it, and it maybe suddenly radiates with meaning. And then maybe over time that meaning changes as you change, you know, it's, it's a, it can be a very beautiful process and it doesn't, like no one's looking, no one's judging. No, don't worry. <laughs> no one's grading you. Yeah, no, yeah. dude, exactly. No one's grading you. There's no priest, right. you know, telling you <laughs> this is the incorrect way. Um, so the other thing I do, well, I, I many things I do, but another thing. So you're gonna see right now is I have these postcards, right? Yeah. So here's a, I got a box of post punk postcards, which is so cool. They sort of play off um, famous album covers a lot from the '80s. I mean, I'm an 80s guy. Echo and the Bunnymen, the Jesus and Mary chain, uh, my, my Wire, one of my favorite bands. This is um, kind of a remix of their album, Pink Flag from 1977, um, Mission of Burma. But then as I go through, here's just a postcard of Prince, whom I worship. I love Prince. Here's an old French tourist postcard. Uh, These are just ones you picked up. As you I travel. just buy random boxes of them yeah. on Amazon and I buy ran when I travel, I buy random yeah. heaps of postcards. Here's an old Vanity Fair cover, um, something from Portugal when we went to Portugal. Uh, he, I have a whole box of um, skateboarders from the 70s in California. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's so cool. It's like Dogtown and Z-Boys, that documentary, but just pictures yeah. of these cool 70s skateboarders. You know, so um, here's one from Automatic Seafood and Oysters in Birmingham, Alabama, because a lot of restaurants have postcards. And here's the cover of Hungry, my book. Oh, Hungry, that's yeah. awesome. Wow. Yeah. So I have Grateful Dead postcards, all sorts of stuff. I actually, my daughter is in college and I send like a postcard almost every day to her up in college. Um, so my process with that is that there, there's, I make them pre-stamped, it already has a stamp. And when I just have some random thing to say, I grab a pen and a, I write the thing on the card. Okay, like almost anything. This guy, Sandor Katz, he's one of the world's authorities on fermentation, okay? Oh, wow, he, okay. He has a cool book coming out, maybe out, called Fermentation as Metaphor. You should talk to him, he's a fascinating guy. And he talks in that book, about fermentation being, you know, a, a metaphor for so many other things in nature and in life. And he talks about emotional composting, the idea of like, you have a negative emotion or depression or something you're grappling with, put it aside, put it in the compost bin, you know, mm. with the banana peels and, and the rotting, you know, leftovers and just see what it evolves into. And I feel like the postcards are kind of like emotional composting. Like I'll have an idea, mm. a memory, a random observation, sometimes one line, sometimes one word, and I'll just send it, you know, to my friend Jason, my friend Pete, um, my friend Clancy, all sorts of friends. That, like, I have a list and just randomly send it off to them. Um, and it's uh, probably really annoying to them. <laughs> I'm not sure, like Jason Tesoro, he gets a lot of them down in Richmond, Virginia, and I'm not sure he reads them or wants them at sure. this point i mean i know that at one point he decorated one of his bars with with all the postcards oh that's cool yeah so i was honored by that but um i think he just we're good enough friends that jason says well this is just part of jeff's creative process and i'm somehow the receptacle because <laughs> the postcards have to go somewhere but you know what's beautiful about postcards is that like i call them slow texts you know mm -hmm. yeah like they're not going to get there immediately. They might not get to the place for a week or so. If you're sending them internationally, it might take weeks. And, and yeah. in a weird way, man, they, may they might never arrive. And, and, and that's okay. Like there's a kind of imperfection to the whole process that I find uh, liberating. 
because writers, you know, we can be very fussy about the sentence being perfect and, and the finding the right audience and promoting it on social media and all, all this, you know, this circus that surrounds the profession of writing now. But with a postcard, there's no audience. It's just, a, it's just tossed the fuck away. It's just gone. It's almost like clearing your mind of this thing. Like meditation, yeah. when you meditate and you let some idea float, float by, you look at it, consider it, and let it go. Mm-hmm. So um, it's disposable intentionally, and I sort of I sort of like that. I think that that again helps free me up as a writer. So if I send a few postcards, then I start to write a column for Esquire. Um, I find that I'm much more freed up because I'm like, whatever, it's just disposable. We're just typing words here. Yeah. It's not a big deal. It doesn't have to be perfect, <laughs> you know. Then maybe I'll go back and edit it and make it. But but sometimes you just got to get through the blockage. And feels- I like that because there's there's no pressure, right, with a postcard. Whereas when you send an email, the recipient is receiving it immediately. They're going to judge you immediately. <laughs> but with the with the postcard, like you're saying, it may never get there. So it's kind of just like what you're saying now makes me think of when somebody's about to start working out. You loosen up, you stretch. You know that's not consequential to your workout. Nobody's judging how much you can lift based on how well you stretch. But it's still something you do to prepare for that workout. That's a so great, it seems that's like a great metaphor. Yeah. That's really good. I yeah, think. so that that's cool. I like that. I think I'm going to start doing that just because you're right. It gets there's so much pressure around a writing assignment, but there's no pressure around postcards. <laughs> no pressure at all. I mean, only in the sense that they do last. I mean, like you know, some people put them in a box yeah. and they'll you know they they may actually outlast us in a way in a physical form that you know texts don't have and you know right um actually i'm in um like i said my daughter's room and there's a postcard here of john lennon you know from the beatles there's the poet marianne moore back there those are actually uh, postcards i sent to her from the road Mm. and it's sort of i found it charming that she put them up in a decorative way you know um I would, I think it's safe to say my daughter's somewhat unsentimental at 18. And so it was, it was kind of nice to see that, uh, that she had um, made use of them in that way. I, I, people are tend to be charmed by a postcard too, because they don't get anything of value in the mail anymore. And, you know, to open the mailbox and find, Hey, wow, Ben sent me a handwritten note. Like, yeah. For the most, like, particularly if it's your parents or it's like old friends, I mean, believe me, they're, they're charmed. It's just when you, they get, you know, 500 of them that then they, they, yeah. they start to worry. <laughs> <laughs> so is there, is there any method to when you're picking the postcards or it's just whatever catches your fancy as you're, you know, online or traveling? Well, that's, that's, that's getting at something very, that, that would unfortunately reveal just how bizarre a person I am and, and, and how much time I waste on things like this. But like, for instance, I found a Grateful Dead postcard um, in my stack here, just at random. And, it, and the date on it was like the Grateful Dead performing, you know, in such and such location on September 16th. So I thought, wow, if I send that now, it will probably arrive at, on September 16th <laughs> to the person I send it to, which is kind of cool. So who's far enough that I thought, Jason in Virginia, this would be just right. Now, he might not notice. He probably won't notice that it arrives on September 16th, which is the date right. of the concert and the postcard. But I thought that was cool. Um, <laughs> sometimes I will think, like, okay, here's an example. Like... Um, this band wire that I mentioned, this is the cover pink flag. Now I have a memory of when I was cooking dinner for my kids, my older kids in a kitchen and I was playing wires album pink flag on, you know, on, on the sound system and, and the, a a song called field day for the Sundays played the song is 28 seconds long. It's super punk, super compressed, concise song. And Margot, my daughter, was probably 13 at the time, maybe 12. She wandered in and she heard that song and heard it end very abruptly. And she said, Daddy, what was that? And I said, 
oh, interesting. <laughs> it was this band called Wire. And, yeah. and, you know, and I think that was around the time she was starting to get very interested in music. She's a singer-songwriter now. She has a couple albums out. And um, she pursued that all on her own, of course. But I do like the, the idea that as a parent, maybe I planted some seeds of some cool music sure. in the household. You know, it's one of the right. things that we do as parents, just kind of introduce people, introduce these beautiful people, our children, to culture, whether it's sure. through food, food from different countries, music music from different countries and cultures, poetry, et cetera, you know, just have it around. Just, yeah. You don't have to be an evangelist. You don't have to be pushy, but just have it around. So sure. long-windedly to answer your question, I thought I'm going to send the wire postcard to Margo at college, you know, because it's a memory. So a lot more thought goes into it than anyone knows. And I don't really tell them that. And if anyone ever notices that there's actually an extra layer of meaning, they'll probably, you know, just say I, I've got to get on medication or something that I'm spending <laughs> so much time on this completely arbitrary and impossible to monetize task you know like this is absolutely a waste of time but um uh except in the sense that it makes me more productive as a writer because it yeah again it loosens that you know and this makes me think, too, of your method that I've read when it comes to choosing poetry books, which is one of the funniest. My favorite ones was you picked a book once just because it was the last one on the shelf. And yeah. you, did, you felt bad for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a, um, a a Polish poet named Adam. And I'm probably going to say his last name wrong, but it's like Zagashevsky. So it's sure. Z-A-G-A -Z and then the rest. Um, and um, I thought, oh, the, he's got a Z name. You know, I feel so bad for him. He's stuck down here. <laughs> I'm just going to buy it, you know. Actually, Matthew Zapruder, Z-A-P-R, you know, is, is a friend of mine. And he's in the same boat. His books are at the end. Um, and uh, it turned out that, that you know, Matthew's books and Adam's books are both, every, every book of theirs I've bought has been extraordinary and brilliant so among my favorites. So I'm glad that I succumbed to that arbitrary impulse like i yeah i wonder if the people with those uh surnames that start with z ha have felt that extra burden growing up of being <laughs> you know at the end of the roll call or whatever it was and have decided i need to distinguish myself <laughs> i mean they're at a severe disadvantage it's really not fair because you know most people when they buy poetry at all they buy it kind of randomly based on names they know and kind of i think just what's squarely visible in the shelf at the bookstore yeah. so they're looking at they're looking at g maybe they're looking at you know k what, whatever's eye level yeah exactly <laughs> you know a and b might be up here but what you know, so z man it's like you really gotta take some effort to get down to z it's and, and you got you have to be working at it you have to get on your knees and actually it's kind of embarrassing because you're on the ground looking at z and and y you know but Kevin Young, he does really well, you know. He's doing well for himself. So, you know, he's such a powerhouse and he's so productive. It's impossible to ignore Kevin Young. If you haven't read, if your audience hasn't read the poetry of Kevin Young, they should. They get, get a book called Jelly Roll in paperback. It's beautiful, sexy, just full of life force poetry. Um, or if you really want to go... Um, whole hog get uh, blue laws which is like a collection of some of its best stuff and when you're reading these poems do you tend to read them out loud no no oh interesting okay no i i i, I know that a lot of people think that that poetry is 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 a you know like an oratory form and it's it's meant to be spoken and heard i i'm gonna be candid with you this is a weird thing but i actually hate poetry readings i hate them. <laughs> wow <laughs> I've, I've been to a lot I've been to a lot just so that I could see, you know, W.S. Merwin and Lucille Clifton and John Ashbery, you know, before they passed, basically. I thought yeah. it's like going to see Bob Dylan, you know, when he's terrible in concert. Um, but, you, you know, you want to pay your respects to Bob right. Dylan, you know. So um, uh, Leonard Cohen, who, who was terrific in concert, I went to see for sort of a similar reason because... I just thought this is going to be the last chance. And, and, uh, but usually I just sit there staring at the ceiling during the poetry reading. I, I don't even understand what's happening. For some reason, I can't, oh. I can't process the poem at all through my ears. I, I, it just sounds like a river of random words. 
Uh, wow, that's so interesting. Yeah, man, it's just not how my brain works. So like John Ashbery, whose poetry really is a river of random words. Uh, they just happen to be um, arranged beautifully. But I mean, it's, it, I have no idea what he was ever talking about. I'm just being candid. Uh, but nevertheless, I love to read it. I mean, it's, it's striking. Yeah. I just love to read it for the effect, the kind of sparkle it has on, on, on my synapses. Um, but when I heard it out loud, I was like, oh, my God, get me out of here. <laughs> right. Oh, my goodness. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I guess everybody's different in that sense, where certain things you can process quite easily in one form and not as, not as smoothly in others. Yeah. And just to, just to pivot to another you know, interesting tidbit you had told me about your process is you like to write longhand. And you wrote, oh, yeah. you estimate about like three quarters of Hungary longhand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. About that. I write a lot of my articles in longhand too. Um, so I write the, po the, 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 the postcards in longhand and, and I yeah. always have pens. And um, there are many, many reasons for this. Um, one of the main reasons is I have four children, two of them toddlers, uh, twin boys who are now two years old. And it's just chaos in the household a lot. So like the only way I can write sometimes is to go sit in the car right out here or get on a train, like one of the computer commuter trains into the city and then just ride back or, um, or I'll go to the local library. And um, I will just grab one of these pads here. Like here's, it's just like a paper, you know, just something you get at Walgreens. It's not expensive or anything. And and it's not some fancy, you know, I don't write calligraphy <laughs> or something, you know. Yeah. I just I just think what what the I won't even bring my fucking laptop. I'll just free myself, yeah. go to the library with nothing but my notes, a pen or a bunch of pens and some paper and just go. Just write. And again, it's just sort of frees it up because I I, I if I don't bring the I can't go on Facebook, I turn off my right. phone, I can't go on Instagram. Yes, I could sit there and do nothing, but I'm going to feel really guilty, you know, after several hours of doing nothing. So, you know, that writer, Neil Gaiman, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So he, I heard that he has some kind of little hut in his backyard and he will go out to the hut and in the hut, he has a pile of paper and a pile of pens and a desk. Mm -hmm. And he also has a cot. And the rule in this creative atelier is that he can either take a nap on the cot mm -hmm. or he can write by hand. There's nothing mm -hmm. else in the room. Wow. And um, I totally understand that because it forces you to, to be creative or to, to surrender. And, and sometimes, obviously, you're lying down taking a nap. And guess what? 15 minutes in, you're like, shoot, I got a great idea. So... Um, my friend Delaunay Michelle, she's a novelist. She told me at one point that there's a completely different kind of track that the brain is on when one is writing in longhand. That like, mm -hmm. it's a different part of your brain than the part that's typing. Um, mm. I don't even know if that's true, but it sounded convincing to me. Yeah. She said that there's more continuity to it. Like it's, it's, it has more of a, a connected flow somehow. It's not as chopped up. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, similar to how I was saying, when I hear poems, it, I, they, they just sound like kind of almost like noise to me. But when I read them on the page, they resonate. I just, yeah. I just find that when I write in longhand, it just, it starts to sing. Mm. And so the only problem with Hungry is that I ended up with like 80,000 words of longhand. And then my editor's, you know, knocking on the door, like, when's the book coming? I was like, oh, I, I mean, I'm done. I'm I think I'm done, you know? And he's like, where is it? I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh, shit. Now I have to right. type it up. So <laughs> I had. To but there was a process you had as you were as you type it up, right? I'm sure certain things come to you in that process, too. That turned out to be the revision process. What I had yeah. in, the, in the paper notebooks was the roughest of rough drafts. It wasn't even in order. You know, if I decided right. to write um, the Norway section before the Malcolm Living section, Livingston section before uh, the third trip to Oaxaca or whatever, that I just didn't right. in any order. And then I had to kind of figure out where they went. Um, and while typing them up into this very laptop, um, I um, changed a lot. You know, I, I improved yeah. it. I dried it out. Um, 
kind of it was it was probably a little too excessive with the adjectives and stuff just like a little over the top in the beginning and I tried to tamp it down um and then I turned it in and, and my editor was like this is good to go you know so that felt really good um I would say a lot of it was written on planes um mm. I I really try not to do the Wi-Fi when I'm on a plane I just I try to get a window seat and then just kind of sequester myself like a monk, you know, in this little space and just force myself to write. Um, a lot was written on trains. A lot was written in bars, just sitting at the end of a bar. Um, so sometimes not even, you know, drinking, just sitting there. <laughs> um, so um, I, uh, I think that all of these processes are ways of... Um, kind of willfully destabilizing your mind, almost like intentionally um, melt, melting it. You know, like yeah. like a writer's block is really almost like a writer's freeze. It seems to me like you're frozen. And these are ways of just melting that ice so that, that there starts to be a torrent and not judging it, you know? Like when I yeah. type up a poem, it's not my poem, so I'm not judging. I'm just like using the music of it as as a kind of intoxicant. When I'm writing a postcard, I'm not trying to make it perfect. And even when I'm writing in longhand a book or an article, I'm not making it perfect at all. I'm not even trying to hit the word count. I mean, yeah. like if my editor said this is supposed to be 600 words or 1,200 words, I'm not even listening to that at that moment. I'm just letting it flow. And then I, when I type it in, I say, oh, wow, I'm 200 words too long. Well, that gives you an opportunity to prune it correctly. And, um, you know, so I, I would say that these, like I, I hinted that maybe these are all pathetic, hapless excuses, you know, and ways to procrastinate, except that I am pretty productive. So, I, I mean, it does seem to make me do stuff. And it, it also makes it feel less like drudgery, you know? Yeah. Because even food writing, which sounds fun, even the excitement of traveling around when we could travel around, right, meeting right. chefs and stuff, you know, it's it, 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 is, it is a fun job, believe me. But um, mm -hmm. writing itself is 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 labor, you know, it's mental labor that is pretty much extraordinarily difficult for all of us, for anyone, you know, whether you're a professional writer or not. And it seems like only Christopher Hitchens didn't find writing difficult based on what yeah. I said. Um, although I, you know, I read an article with Christopher Hitchens once, like a profile, I think in the New Yorker and, and he, he almost as, as an experiment, as, as like a test with the author of the article, he did something like, he's like, okay, well, I'll just write an article. I'll write something this afternoon, you know, yeah. for Vanity or Fair or something while drinking whiskey and eating a pie. And I, I I'm probably misremembering this, Ben, but I, I was impressed by this, that he wrote on command. That he was just like, okay, yeah. sure, let's write, you know, that's, that's the mark of a professional. Yeah. You don't need the, the whiskey and the pie, which I think would make me extremely uh, nauseous, but um, <laughs> just to say, yeah, we're doing it now. We're working, you know, I, I worked in newspapers for a lot of my career and you don't have an, you don't have an, an out with your editors. Right. I don't know. You can't say, well, I'm not feeling it as an artist right now. I mean, th that shit is due. It is due. It's going to go in the paper tomorrow. It's going to go up yeah. the site at five o'clock. you got to move. You have no excuse. Is that something you found liberating about working on a book like Hungary or doing pieces for a magazine as opposed to a newspaper is you, you have um, the liberty to kind of melt that uh, you talked about a writer's freeze. You have the liberty to melt that block. Yeah, but it's scary. The, fr the freedom is scary. Like when I, you don't yeah. have an editor telling you every day, do this, it's due, finish, you know, yeah. it, it's too tempting to drift. I mean, in this pandemic time, when I can't really travel much, I'm stuck in the house. And sometimes there's not much new information because I'm not visiting yeah. new restaurants or anything. Um, it's too all too tempting to let yourself drift down the river you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> without producing much of anything so um uh i the book was i mean i had moments where i thought i won't finish this book uh, i i panicked um also had the baby twins coming um mm. 
Lauren had gotten pregnant with Jasper and Wesley, and uh, they, they arrived in May of 2018. I turned in the book, the final draft, in October of 2018. So my 20, middle of 2018 was a nightmare. It was, oh, my goodness. Yeah, I mean, I had twin kids in the house. I had two teenagers. Um, the, 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 the twins were babies, just screaming and being fed all the time. And I was sleeping like three hours a night if I was lucky. Like, and I was somehow supposed to write this book. It was, um, I don't even know how I made it through. So, I mean, Lauren was nice enough to say, you know, and smart enough to say, when you need time, take the time, go, go do it, just be productive. Like if you come back yeah. and you didn't write anything, that's, <laughs> there's no excuse right now. You know, I sound like kind of a hardliner, but I guess I am. I have an old friend from college who made a lot of money. You know, I, I, I went to college with, Jeff Bezos, okay, who later, you know. Heard of him. Yeah, yeah richest man in the world or whatever, like Amazon.com. <laughs> I did not befriend him. I probably yeah. should have. I was at college <laughs> with Michelle Obama, you know, yeah. before she was with Barack Obama. I mean, I remember her from campus. I probably should have befriended these individuals, but I, <laughs> you know, you, you fall in with whatever friends you fall in with. But one friend did become quite wealthy and owns a house in the Hamptons. I am not wealthy and probably will never own a house in the Hamptons, but he was like, um, you know, listen, dude, you got to finish this book. You're dying. You know, if you don't finish it. And it's interesting because if I hadn't finished it, you know, it wouldn't have come out in the summer of 2019 and it would have been lost in this pandemic. So I'm glad people yeah. pushed me to finish the damn thing. So he basically lent me his house in the Hamptons for a week. One week is all, but he said, like, just, well, I won't be there. Just, just be there by yourself and finish yeah. the damn book. So I, I did, I would get up six in the morning, have a bunch of cold brew. Like I said, barely eat breakfast or lunch and just write all day. Revise, really revise, yeah. revise. And then at, you know, six or seven, I'd quit and I'd go get a lobster roll and a martini. And then I'd go back to bed, wake up, and do it again. And by Thursday I had a book. I was like, yeah, this is done. This is good. It's funny how, what's the quote? It's like work fills up the the volume of time you give it. So, you know, if yeah. you give yourself, you know, one week or one month, you find a way to, to make it work for that deadline. The last thing I want to ask you before we transition to rapid fire is, I mean, you're no stranger to writing profiles. And something I love about your profiles is, especially when you're writing about chefs and people in the food world, you do a great job of not just being like, yum, this was delicious and here's why, but you go into the aura of the person and that person's personality in a really cool way. And that's something I really like. And when you watch people who are not professionals in the food world, I think, or who are just starting, I think it's easy to see people who are like, oh my God, this is delicious. Yeah. And it's like, cool, <laughs> great. <laughs> um, I didn't, that doesn't tell me anything. So what I really like about your writing is just being able to learn, you know, it's delicious and here's why, but also here's why this is a fascinating person. Huh. Um, how, do, how, do you, how do you strike that balance as you're writing? And what's, in general, as you're approaching a profile, I'm curious, you know, I, I come from a TV background, so we look at things as, as pre-production, production, and post-production. Yeah. To take that analogy to, to writing profiles, what's the prep you're doing going into the profile? What's on your mind when you're spending time with the person? And then what are you doing when you're finally sitting down to put the piece together? Wow. Well, the, to, to, to get at your first point there, you're, that's very flattering and perceptive, Ben. Thank you. Because I actually, this is deep, dark secret. I, I don't even have a lot of interest in food. <laughs> I don't. I, 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 I you fooled us. Yeah, I love food. <laughs> I go to restaurants. I enjoy restaurants. I cook. But, you know, like I'm not as passionate about cooking as a lot of food writers. I'm not, um, I'm not quite as obsessed as you would think. What I'm obsessed with, what I've always been fixated on, what I've always been drawn to is creative people. Okay, so mm -hmm. I've profiled musicians. I interviewed David Bowie twice, Willie Nelson. You know, I'm, I'm filmmakers, poets, um, I was drawn to writing about chefs because I saw them as creative people who were very much in the spotlight at the moment of, you know, the last 20 years and also relatively unfiltered. 
Like you didn't have yeah. to go through a wall of publicists to talk to them. They didn't have a bunch of pre-coached talking points when you met right. them in a hotel room for half an hour to get some answers. It was like one of the first chefs I profiled was Gabrielle Hamilton, who's also an author of Blood, Bones, and Butter. And she has a restaurant called Prune in New York City. And when I when I interviewed her, she was like, so how many days do you need? And I was like, days? Oh, <laughs> this is going to be fun. Like, she gave me all week, you know, and it was yeah. actually around the time of Valentine's Day. So she let me be in the kitchen while they were cooking Valentine's Day dinner for all these romantic couples. And, I mean, yeah. it was one action shot after another, one great quote after another. I am drawn to Gabrielle Hamilton and Mashama Bailey and Francis Malman and Zhang Kwan, the Buddhist nun in Korea, for the same reason. They're all wildly different people. I mean, Francis Malman and Zhang Kwan could not be more yeah. opposite. <laughs> and neither person is a mission statement for me. I don't agree with one or aspire to be the other. I mean, I admire them in all different ways, but essentially I just find them interesting. I just find them sure. to be interesting, creative people. And I wanna know what makes them tick. And I wanna know what drives them to do the work they do. So food is just ancillary. Food is just the medium they happen to use, you know? So it, it could be music, it could be film. Um, it's all interesting to me. Uh, it's just that I like people who are obsessed and, and maybe this won't come as a shock, given what I've told you, but I like people who are a little weird too, like a little, yeah. you know, who have weird practices and, or, you know, unusual perspectives on life or something like that. I mean, Francis Malman is, is, is a very odd dude. He's, he's sort of wildly captivating and also an, like a classic eccentric, you know. Um, yeah. um, I guess my process going in is to do a lot of research, but not too much. I used to do so much research when I was younger. I'd read absolutely everything I could get my hands on. I've, and I think this is a trait of older writers or midlife writers. Maybe you let that go a bit and you allow there to be more tabula rasa in the process because you don't want to replicate every profile that's ever been written about that person. Yeah. And you find that the more research you do, it starts to clog the pipe somehow. It starts to like intrude on your own perspective. Um, and you, ultimately, I want these pieces to be original, to have a kind of original yeah. vantage point, if possible. That's kind of a pretentious aspiration. But I don't want, I don't want them to sound like everybody else's pieces. So, um, right. so you do enough research that you won't sound dumb when you interview the person. And then when you go, I just become the opposite of what I've been the last 45 minutes. Like I just stop talking basically. And I try, yeah. I just listen. And I, I carry around these little notebooks and I just write in them all day. Everything everybody says, everybody does. Sometimes I tape some on my phone, but you know, if you're spending a week with somebody or four days on a, a Patagonian Island, I mean, you can't tape everything. You'll have, you'll have like right. hours of footage and you really can't get through it all. So a lot of times, I'll just sit and I'll wait for something interesting to come up and I'll write it down. It's kind of fly on the wall process. And after a while they forget I'm there, you know, like I remember one point, um, Nadine, uh, Levy Redzepi, who's Renee Redzepi's wife and also a great chef herself and, and a wonderful person. I mean, she, she read hungry and she, there was some point where she's like, how did you get this whole conversation between me and Renee in the bus? I don't know. I was like, I was there. <laughs> Remember, I was sitting in the bus. I was sitting in the van, like while you guys were watching Finding Dory or something. And, and right. you know, um, so I, I thought it was a compliment that people forget I'm there and, and I just start being absorbent. I become like a sponge and just sort of, yeah. and, and, and for me, it's kind of non-judgmental. I mean, I'm not, I'm not judging what they say or do. I'm just writing it down. And maybe later when you talk about phase three that's when i try to process it and make sense of it um you know right now i don't know when this will air but like right now we're all thinking about bob woodward and these quotes that you know this legendary journalist bob woodward got from donald trump and you know you hear woodward himself on the tapes and he's like yeah yes hmm 
interesting. You know, like, and people say, well, how does Bob Woodward get all this good stuff? You don't hear him much. He's just being a yeah. conduit. And he, he's not really affirming anything or judging anything. He's just, oh, okay, yeah, oh. And I, I think I do something similar. I just, tr- I just try to let them vent, you know. Yeah. Zhang, the Zhang Guan piece, of course, that, w- that was more challenging because she, she didn't speak English. So, the, you know, you're working yeah. with a translator and um, the translator was brilliant and lovely, but there's still that kind of time lapse. There's this like, yeah. for the, and, and, and it, you lose a little bit of the rhythm of conversation and listening becomes a little more artificial. So that process had to be more about observing, more about observing mm-hmm. what she did, you know. Um, and then I guess you're thinking of what's a theme here or something, you know, like a, a lot of it boils down to what's, yeah, I'm sure you get this in TV too. Like what's the opening scene? What, how are we going to start yeah. this thing? To me, I, I, I come from newspapers, newspapers, you got to have a good lead. Yeah, got to have something that just grabs people. When I was at Entertainment Weekly, I wrote a, a cover story about Saving Private Ryan, that movie, the Steven Spielberg movie. Yeah. Um, I kept working on what is the lead, what is the lead. You got all these different actors. They said all different things. And then I, I, I realized that they had all discussed the ways in which they had to be trained in, in how it looks when you're shot on a battlefield, mm-hmm. you know? So, like, yeah, because... Um, there's lots of fake ways people do it in Hollywood movies, but they had to learn the real way. You kind of crumple. And so I, my opening sentence was, this is how you die. And I thought, that's good. That's You're going to read the second sentence if you see that yeah. first sentence. You know? <laughs> my editor was a guy named Mark Harris. And he was like, this is like the best lead sentence that's ever been in Entertainment Weekly because you have to read the next paragraph like you this is so weird it's like this is how you die what it's um i was proud of that you know little victories so it's it's sometimes i'm 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 trying to compress it into some sort of grabby thing and then Mm -hmm. then sort of the uh, outline of the story unfolds from that so like francis mallman i realized that there was a lot of it was compelling to describe how hard it was to get to this island he was on. Yeah. You know, so sometimes it's really boring when people talk about the travel, uh, the tedium of travel getting somewhere. But in this case, it was like this plane to this plane, this plane to this plane, then you get in a car, then you go on this boat, then you go. Yeah. And it was like, actually, it's kind of interesting. And it kind of, the remoteness is uh, serves as a metaphor for him and his, um, his eccentricity and, you know, to be in a, with a person, it was with him and his brother and our photographer and a couple more people on this island. And we were like the only people for hundreds of miles. I mean, that's a crazy thing to contemplate on this earth. You yeah. Know? So the remoteness was central to me. Um, uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I write, I guess what I'm saying is I write kind of instinctually. And um, yeah. based on my, it's, I kind of go with my gut and, and I sometimes pay the price for that, I think, because I'm not really an intellectual writer. Um, and the way I write stories in a way is connected to how I write the postcards. It's just like I go with a sentence that sounds good. I go with a scene that seems vivid. <clears throat> but sometimes I just haven't thought it through. Like the Francis Mallman piece got some criticism. I think he was seen as you know, this kind of emblem of patriarchy, you know, and, and mm-hmm. the way he lives and, and uh, the fact that he has all these children with different women. And, and, and I realized that I, I, you know, a lot of the criticism was merited. I think I should have um, taken a breath away from just the vividness of the scenes and, and taken a step back and analyzed how this looks, like the optics of what he's doing and his place in uh, contemporary culinary culture um and and this kind of antiquated perspective he has i think the piece would have benefited from sure. uh perspective right yeah um and you know i'm 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 hoping i'm getting old enough that i can listen to that and and i mean at first you're just sort of like wait a second you didn't love it <laughs> but it's important <laughs> to listen and you know there's a lot of brilliant people out there who who have insights and i think that um 
those insights about that story really helped me think more deeply. So I, if I, I, that's one of the pieces I might actually rewrite. Like if I were given a chance to do it again, yeah, you know, to remake it as a movie, I'd probably write it differently. So. Well, I think it's reassuring as a young writer in my position to hear from someone like you, who even at your level, you look back and you're like, yeah, there, there, there's potential to maybe go back and tweak that. The, the, the point being, you know, you can write as many profiles as you've written and still look back and feel like, hey, that criticism, yeah, could be merited. Yeah, um, I think that's, yeah. that's just only, that's, I, I do think that the John, John Kwan piece is, is quite radiant and beautiful because yeah. she is, because she is yeah. a special individual. Um, and um, Hanya, my editor at T Magazine, is just one of the most extraordinary literary minds of our generation. So I benefited yeah. from her uh, extremely perceptive editing. But, um, you know, not every, not, I mean, filmmakers, you know, they, I've met a lot of filmmakers. They don't look back and see all their films as perfect, you know. Oh, yeah. You know, even I just interviewed Francis Ford Coppola. I mean, the guy made The Godfather 1, Godfather 2, Apocalypse Now, The Conversation, The Outsiders. I mean, he doesn't have a very uh, high opinion of himself as a, as a filmmaker. He told me he thought of himself as sort of second rate. I, I, oh, my goodness. <laughs> and he makes all these masterpieces. Masterpieces are, you know. Yeah. Arguably, you know, Godfather 2 might be the greatest American film ever made, you know. And, and um but he doesn't see it that way. And I think with time, maybe you see, see the flaws, you know, times change, perspectives change. So I guess I'm trying to just accept that, you know, but I think that's a, yeah. Part of why that happens is because I, to get things done, to, to power through, I I do write from the gut. I write from kind of this place of music, you know, like yeah. when we started this, you said, what, you, I have to say, like, when I was a child, I wanted to be a paleontologist. Yeah. That is true when I was really little, like my toddlers, who you might hear in the back screaming. Um, but when I was um, kind of like a young teenager, I wanted to be a composer. Uh, and I studied composing. I studied piano. And I wanted to, to essentially compose, like, contemporary classical music. And I have a theory that a lot of people who wind up becoming writers are writers who are working through what they wanted to do in the first place. Okay. So like my friend, Tom, do you know, he always, he has kind of a legal mind. I feel like he should have been a lawyer and his pieces are always in a way, legal arguments that take you all the way to this point of view, but then, then take a sharp turn and they introduce you to this other point of view. And by the end, you feel like you've heard this entire arc of a legal argument. I think that I'm essentially composing music um, for better or worse, sometimes for worse. It just sounds good to me. It flows nicely to me. To me, it has like a, you know, a sense of symphonic parts. And um, yeah, sometimes I'll read something I, I, I wrote and I, I like the way it um, kind of chimes, right, musically, but then I, I realized that I didn't bring enough of that legal mind to it, you know, yeah. I didn't bring enough intellect to it. I'm just being honest, like, you know, it's, it's, we all have our strong points in our, in our omissions. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful segue into our rapid fire, which we always like to ask our guests, what's a song that you're currently jamming to? Um... I am jamming to a song called Living the Dream by Sturgill Simpson, who's a country musician. I don't necessarily listen to a whole lot of Americana or country Western or whatever, but this Sturgill Simpson guy is, um, is kind of a genius. And I, I, I haven't heard music in a long time that has just knocked me out like this. Um, yeah. He has a line in Living the Dream where he says something like, it's like making a big pot of coffee when you ain't got no cream. Like, like what's the point, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. And I, I am a big fan of cream in my coffee, not milk, cream. So I, that line, <laughs> I really love that line. Like, like making a big pot of coffee when you ain't got no cream. Like, why'd you even do it, you know, if it's not going to have some cream to it? <laughs> That's beautiful. I love that. And um, who would you like to play you in a movie about your life? You mean besides Brad Pitt? 
Besides Brad Pitt. <laughs> no, we can go with Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt. No, that's answer. a joke. I mean, obviously, I'm not, that's that's a, my wife would be scoffing. I think she would, she would say Paul Giamatti. Um, <laughs> I will be. I guess you know Edward Norton. I've always felt like oh, cool. Edward Norton and I have are, are are somewhat similar look or wiring or something. That's not necessarily a funny answer, but I do think that he'd probably do a good job of playing me. He's a good actor, for sure. What's a place you haven't been to yet that you hope to visit? Japan. Mm. It's, That's been a common answer, actually. It's embarrassing that I haven't been to Japan as a food writer. It's a huge omission. It's, 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 it's actually absurd. And, and Rene Redzepi and many chefs have told me I'm, I'm just basically an amateur until I've traveled in Japan for a month and eaten food all over the place. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not a wealthy man. I can't just hop on a flight and go. Right. So that. <laughs> well, now it's even now it's even harder. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, lastly, where can people find your work and follow you on social media? The best thing to do is Instagram. I'm the Gordoneer on Instagram. Uh, I I am on Twitter, but my activity there is minimal at best. Mostly, I just retweet other people's brilliant political tweets and um, food tweets. I don't I don't have a whole lot to say. I don't have the mind for it. I'm not quick enough to compete in the ecosystem of Twitter. Like I'd just be swatted away right away. So, um, you know, I'd say, um, I'd say Instagram. Perfect. And if anybody is curious about the podcast, you can check us out on Instagram at HDYDpod or online at HDYDpod.com. 